Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, over the years, my life has become more and more sedentary. I spend a lot of time just sitting whether it's sitting down to spend time in the Word or to prepare for a sermon or uh, disciple someone or counsel someone or just meet with another person, uh, a lot of it is just sitting down. Uh, quite sedentary, I would say. So, And I haven't been diligent about exercising or uh, even the kind of food that I intake. And most recently, uh, you know, checking my blood levels, uh, my cholesterol levels have uh, gone up and the doctors have put me on some medication and told me to exercise and, and uh, change my food habits and a, a few other things. Now at this point... You know, I could say, oh, God is sovereign. You know, he, had, he has ordained a day and a time for me to die, and whenever that is, that will happen. I don't really need to do anything. Well, that would be very foolish of me, because yes, God is sovereign, and he has ordained a day when I will die, and you will die, and every, every other person that's sitting here will die. But there are also means that God uses to bring about what he has purposed. And I would be foolish not to listen to the doctor's advice and take medication and exercise and change some of my food habits. Because on the one side, if God is sovereign, yeah, that might be what God has ordained, that I would you know, get cholesterol, and the problem with high cholesterol is over time, it, it hardens the arteries in your body. With the cholesterol building up in the arteries, it builds up in the arteries and it hardens the arteries. And over time, what happens is then the blood flow to the uh, artery gets minimized, and ultimately, uh, you can have plaques going into the artery as well, and your heart will stop, or essentially you will have a hard heart. What we need to realize is that God is not only sovereign, but he also uses means to achieve his purposes. And in my case, with cholesterol, it would be the means that I would take medication and exercise and, and do other things to bring down my cholesterol level. That's the means by which God will do something in my life with regards to my cholesterol. But similarly, spiritually speaking, we can think that way. Sometimes, especially in our churches, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we can think, oh, God is sovereign, so that means God has sovereignly saved me. That means I don't need to do anything in the Christian life when we couldn't be mistaken. Because again, God uses means to, to preserve us and to, for us to live in this world as Christians. And one of the means that he uses is through scripture and, and even through his people to continue to sustain us in this world. The passage that we've read this morning, that we're gonna look at this morning, is a passage that talks about the danger of hardening your heart. Not just with cholesterol, but spiritually speaking. You see, the audience that this author is writing to, they were in danger of hardening their hearts because of certain trials and afflictions that they were facing. There was the danger of persecution coming their way for following Jesus. 
And so they were in danger of turning away from Jesus and hardening their heart against Jesus and going back to Judaism because that would just be so much more convenient for them. And so that's what this passage is about. It's a warning against not hardening our hearts. And it's the means by which, again, this is the second of the warnings in the book of Hebrews, and it's a means by which, again, the author wants the Christians, therefore, to heed the warning and to persevere in their faith. This is the means that God is using. Now, I want to, because it's been a few weeks, I want to give you a quick uh, reminder of what has happened so far. In the first couple of chapters, the author has mentioned how great Jesus is, that he is the final revelation, final word of God, no one more superior than him. And the reason why he is the final revelation of God and a superior revelation is not only that he reveals things, but he's the one who will ultimately accomplish what God has said. Why? Because he is God incarnate. He's fully God and fully man. That means he's able to accomplish what God has revealed in the past and he's a culmination of God's revelation this way. And he's not just God who can accomplish this, but he's also fully man. One who was man in every way like you and me, yet without sinful nature. Man who came down to, God who came down in the form of man to, to represent us, to take our place, to die in our place, to obey in our place. And then to rise from the dead in our place so that all who would put their trust in Jesus would be saved. And then in Hebrews 3, in the first six chapters that we saw a couple of weeks ago, then the author emphasizes, therefore, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith. Jesus, the apostle, the one who represented apostle, just means someone who's sent from God. The one who was sent from God, the one who represented God to us, and who better to represent God to us than God himself in the flesh. Consider Jesus who has been revealed to us, the apostle of God, the apostle of God. But also consider the, the high priest that he is, the one who represented man to God, the one who represented us fallen creatures, and on our behalf, offered the perfect sacrifice and, rep and stood before God, pleading on our behalf. And what better person to do that than a perfect man? And he's none other than God-man, Jesus Christ. And then because he's talking to Hebrew Christians or Jewish Christians, they might be tempted to think, okay, so you're talking about a mediator between God and man, but we have one like that, Moses. I mean, he was great. He was faithful. And so he argues and says, yes, Moses was faithful and Jesus was faithful, but there's a huge difference between the two people. And the difference is this. Jesus is the one who made the house of God. Jesus is the one who made the people of God. Moses was simply a servant serving in the house of God, amongst the people of God, but Jesus is the one who made the people of God because he himself is God. No ordinary man can do this. And then on top of that, he said, and he serves over the house of God now as the son of God, as the messianic son of God, not as a servant. See, the problem with a servant is a servant can be replaced anytime. But a son remains a son forever. You cannot change the status of the son. And so Jesus now serves as the son over the house of God, serves over you and me as our elder brother. And so we have confidence that our elder brother, because we are so connected to him as family, that he's going to care for us, he's going to protect us, and he's going to secure us. No ordinary man can do this. He had to be God-man, 
Jesus Christ. And then that last part of verse 6, where he even exhorts, says, so we are his house, we are part of God's house that Jesus has built if we hold on our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That if we consider Christ and, and so then we still have our confidence and our hope rooted in him that we will persevere as we consider Christ and look on to him. And that's not saying only if you do that we will become part of God's house. He's saying this is what is characteristic of the people of God. This is what is characteristic of Christians. That we will hold on to our confidence and our hope as we consider Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he will do. Because that is the evidence that we are part of God's family. So now, he wants to continue to encourage his hearers. But he wants to do that now with a second warning from this passage from verses 7 through 19. And I've divided this section into two parts. We're going to look at the first section, which is the tragedy of hardened hearts. That's in verses 7 through to 11, and then again in verses 16 through 19, where the author repeats what he has said, except now in a more Uh, question-answer format, just to emphasize what he has said in verses 7 through 11. So we're going to club those two together, verses 7 through 11 and 16 through 19, and that's our first point, which is the tragedy of hardened hearts. And then secondly, we'll look at the remedy against hardening hearts in verses 12 through to 15. So firstly, the tragedy of hardened hearts. So he's just said you are God's household if you hold fast to your confidence and hope as you consider Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our faith. And now the author says, therefore. What does he mean by therefore? So if you are holding on, if indeed you are holding on, here's what you must do. And he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now the author is going to quote from the second half of Psalm 95, which is part of our Bible reading this morning. But before we get into that, I just want you to notice the tense that the author uses here. He doesn't say, as the Holy Spirit has said, as though in the past tense, because he's talking about Psalm 95. No, instead he says, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense. Meaning, God is still continuing to speak through his word. You want to know if God is speaking to you now? Yes, God still speaks. How? Through his word. The Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit is speaking through his word even now. See, even the Old Testament, even what was written to a generation before, a a generation of people under the Old Covenant, God spoke to them, yes, but through that God is still speaking to us, his people, in this day and age. See, what's in the Old Testament is not just, oh, that's just for people during that time. And I don't have to bother about it. It bears no relevance in my life. You know, I can just kind of put it aside, just have my New Testament and just hold on to that. No, you know, just just what the author is saying here is, no, the Holy Spirit still speaks. And he speaks even from the Old Testament to us, his people, through his word. Even through the word that was given to the Old Covenant saints. This is the word of God, and even as Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, and it is sufficient for all things. It is never out of date, because it is God's unchanging word. So now the author, now he quotes from Psalm 
95, and this is what he says. This is from the second half of Psalm 95. Continuing on verse 7, where he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the psalmist that the author of Hebrews is quoting is talking about the generation of Israelites who wandered in the wilderness and died. Now, specifically, if you look at verse 8 again, it says, Don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion on the day of testing. And if you look back at Psalm 95 and verse 8, the corresponding verse there, you see terms there, Meribah, which can be translated as rebellion. And then Massa is another place name which can be translated as testing. So what the author of Hebrews has done is those two place names, Meribah and Massa, he's just translated its meaning here as rebellion and testing. And what, what is this particularly referring to, this Meribah and Massa? What, what incident is this referring to? It's referring to a time of the Israelites in chapter Exodus 17. You know, here, it's only been a short few months since the Lord had miraculously delivered the Israelites from Egypt by sending the ten plagues. You know, really showing how these plagues came to affect all the Egyptians, but all the Israelites were saved. And then the Lord miraculously led them through the through the Red Sea while the Egyptian army was drowned in that Red Sea as the Red Sea that was parted came together. And then the people of Israel, they entered into the wilderness. And God was still with them in a pillar of cloud by day to help them from the heat of the day. And then by, they were led by a pillar of fire by night to give them light at night. And then they came to a place where there was bitter water and God made that water sweet and gave them water to drink in the desert. They traveled further into the wilderness and they didn't have food at the time. And the people started grumbling and, they start, and God still miraculously provided manna for them from heaven. And the scene right after that is Exodus 17. Here's where there's, they've now come to a place where there's no water. Again, they're in the desert. You can imagine how difficult it would be as you're traveling through the desert and there's no water. See, when you think of this difficulty that they were facing now, you know, one of the things that you need to keep in mind is this. God had miraculously delivered and provided for the Israelites. There was no doubt about it. And the difficulties in the wilderness were part of God testing his people to see their allegiance to him. You know, we've all taken some kind of test, right, while growing up, whether in school or in university, we've all taken some form of test. And the reason for the test is that it's an assessment of how we're doing with regards to a particular subject. You know, test is not something that's horrible. It's not a bad thing. They're actually helpful things to understand where we stand in relationship with a particular subject. And so similarly, God tests his people through difficulties, not because he's cruel, but so that we can understand what is truly in our hearts whether we are holding on to the Lord through the difficulty or if there are other things that we are holding on to, then during those trials and difficulties, those things that, are, that we are holding on to, unnecessary things that we are holding on to, will become exposed 
And that's not a bad thing. Because if it shows that we are holding on to something else other than the Lord himself, it's an opportunity for us then to turn back to the Lord and turn away from whatever else we are holding on to and to trust in him. Why? Because this is for our good, right? Because if we don't hold on to the Lord and we hold on to other things for our security, for our comfort, for whatever else it is that we are holding on to, that's not going to be good for us. It will only lead to our ruin. So it's a good thing that God tests us through difficulties. It's an assessment. It's a good thing showing what's in our hearts so that if we're not holding on to the Lord, then that's revealed and we can turn and trust in the Lord and hold on to him. If, we, if it comes out that we're holding on to the Lord, then we're greatly encouraged and we can keep holding on to the Lord. And we should always keep this in mind when we face difficulties and trials in this life. That's one of the reasons why he sends difficulties. It's not because God is being cruel. Oh no, God is testing us to help us assess what's in our hearts so that we can hold on to him, which is for our good and his glory. So that's exactly what the Lord was doing with the Israelites in the wilderness. And so they, you come to Exodus 17 and they come to a place where there's no water. What is God doing there? He's testing them. And what do the people do? They start grumbling and murmuring and questioning Moses and even the Lord. In fact, if you look at Exodus 17:7, they even say, is the Lord amongst us or not? Even saying, has the Lord abandoned us? Does he even care? What they were doing there is instead of being tested by God, they started testing God. They flipped it around. Where they said, God, you prove yourself. You prove your worth right now. And still, God was gracious to provide water from them after Moses was told to hit the rock and water came out from it. And then Moses names the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and rebellion, because that's how the people responded to the Lord in that place. And there's many other instances where the Israelites rebelled against the Lord, but the most pivotal one then comes in Numbers chapter 14. So some more time had passed. Now the nation of Israel, they're right near the promised land of Canaan. And God commands the people of Israel to send out 12 men, one man from each tribe to spy out the land before entering into it. And so these 12 spies from each tribe, they, they went and spied out the land for 40 days. Now remember that for 40 days they spied out the land. And after 40 days, these men come back. And they all agreed, oh, the land is very fruitful. It really is the land flowing with milk and honey. But then after that, 10 of them gave a negative report saying, oh, the people of the land, they're like giants and we'd be like grasshoppers standing next to them. They're much stronger than us. We can't go against them. Oh, no, no, no. Only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they urged the Israelites, no, come on, let's go into the land. In fact, they would further urge the people in Numbers 14 uh, verses 8 and 9 where they'd say, don't rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. The Lord is with us. See, it's the Lord who had commanded them to take hold of the land, and he had promised that he would be with them. This was a sure promise. But what do the people do? They rebel against the Lord. No, no, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to trust you. In fact, if you look at Numbers 14, 2, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, essentially saying, it would have been better if we died in Egypt. 
It would have been better even if we died in the wilderness. Now keep that in mind as well as they're taunting the Lord and saying, it'd be better if we died in the wilderness. And then they, they go on to say, why is the Lord bringing us into the land to be killed by the Canaanites? That's what they say in Numbers 14 too. So they refuse to obey the Lord, to go into the land and to take possession of the land by trusting in the Lord. And so much so that they even sought to stone Joshua and Caleb, the only two men that trusted the Lord to give them the land. And so in Numbers 14, 11, it says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have done among them? And you know what happened? God's judgment fell on them because of their repeated unbelief and rebellion against God. And God gave them exactly what they wanted. Everyone over the age of 20 in in that generation who rebelled against the Lord would wander then in the wilderness, even though they were so close to the promised land, for another 40 years. And they would all die in the wilderness. Why 40 years? One year for every day the spies were in the land. They would be outside the land for another 40 years. And that generation would die during these 40 years of wandering, except for Joshua and Caleb, the only two of that generation who would enter the promised land. And it wasn't on a few occasions even after that, just here and there. The people of that generation rebelled against God and did not trust in Him. Now coming back to Hebrews 3 and verse 10, the Lord says, for those 40 years now, that generation always went astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. See, this is what characterized the Israelites, even for those 40 years after that. Always defecting and turning away from the Lord. See, the Lord had repeatedly shown His ways to them. The Lord had revealed Himself at Mount Sinai, as if that was not enough, and all the miraculous things that happened in Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea, as if that wasn't enough. The Lord guided them pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. The Lord provided them, provided for them in so many ways for those 40 years, showing his mercy and his grace and his love and even his patience toward them. And yet, they did not know God for who he is. They chose not to see his love and his grace and his patience and his mercy shown to them all that while, while they were still rebelling and they did not know his ways. And now to summarize and even to emphasize this unbelief and the rebellion of this generation of Israelites, the author of Hebrews says the same thing in question-answer form and that we see in verses 16 through 19 where he says, for whose were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. See, what the author is emphasizing again is, see, this was the generation of Israelites that left Egypt with all the signs and the wonders and miraculous ways that God had rescued them from there. It's that generation. And despite God caring for them in the wilderness, they continued to harden their heart in unbelief and rebelled against God. You know the term for 
hardening that's used here in this passage. It is the same term that's used in Exodus to refer to another person who hardens his heart, Pharaoh. It's the exact same term. See, God showed in Exodus, God showed his mighty power beyond all doubt, showing Pharaoh who was the true and living God through those 10 plagues that God brought to Egypt. And when there were certain moments when it was difficult, Pharaoh would ask for reprieve and God would relent. But then again, Pharaoh would harden his heart. And despite all the evidence that was there of who God is, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and did not believe in God and trust in God and rebelled against him. And sadly, the very generation of Israelites who were rescued from that Pharaoh, the very generation that saw Pharaoh hardening his heart, that very generation of Israelites became just like Pharaoh. And they hardened their hearts too, just like Pharaoh. Now what does it mean to have a hardened heart? It means to be resistant to God and his word and his ways. Where the heart has become so hardened, so stone cold hard, toward God and his word that now it is impervious to the things of God. You know, the Israelites at first, because they were being rescued from Egypt in a miraculous way, they were all ready to follow the Lord. Oh yeah, let's follow the Lord, the great I am. But within a short time, when the difficulties came, they began to grumble and question God and his care and his provision. One commentator, you know, talking about the attitude of the Israelites, says, quote, It was a fair weather, herd instinct faith, good until the first trial when it dissolved in unbelief, close quote. See, it's like this. They, they enjoyed all the goodness of God and all his provision. But when the difficult time came or the first trial came, they're not relying on God and his character and his provisions and his promises. Instead, they put God to the test. God, you prove yourself still to me that you are still God. And God would still graciously and patiently provide for their need. But they still refused to see God and his ways despite all that God had done. You know, even in the way he acted toward them all those years, it would have shown to them that he is good and gracious and merciful and loving and righteous. But they didn't want to know God. They didn't want to submit to him. All they wanted from God was to fulfill their desires when they had difficulties and without having to submit to him. Like he was some sort of personal butler. I'm in trouble, you get me this. You serve my purposes, now I can do whatever I want. I'm happy, God, to have all the gifts from you, but I'm not really interested in you. That would be the attitude of the heart of the Israelites of that generation. So the author's point is this, that this generation of Israelites who repeatedly hardened their hearts did not enter the promised land. The promised land of rest from wanderings in the wilderness. And it's even pointing to the fact that they could not enter the ultimate rest of God, which is a reference to the ultimate sal salvation that God will bring about. I mean, think about this, right? These were people who called on the name of the true and living God, Yahweh. At least externally. But internally, their hearts were hardened. 
And as a result, they were not saved ultimately. I mean, there were more than a million people, some say maybe even up to two million people, this generation of Israelites. And yet, all of them died in the wilderness as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years for their rebellion, except for Joshua and Caleb. See, the author is using the example of this generation of Israelites who didn't enter the rest of the Lord to help us examine our own hearts, to help his listeners to to examine their own hearts, to ask ourselves, do I have a hard heart or a soft heart toward God? Is this just an external show, but internally there's nothing? Or do I truly have a soft heart toward God? You know, maybe you're someone who calls on the name of Jesus, at least externally. But really, on the inside, and maybe perhaps in your private life too, you're just living in overt sin and rebellion against God. And the reason why you think you, you, know, you still follow Jesus and love Jesus and you're part of his household is because you had some great experience in your past. And that's what you're holding on to. Oh, you know what? This was a great experience and that's why I think I'm saved. And yet right now where you're at, where your heart is at, there's none of that. There is no interest in the things of God. There's just this outer shell. You have no real regard for God's word and every time there is trouble without not recognizing that God may be testing you in this for your own good, you start testing God. God, no, you need to prove yourself in this trial. You need to do this for me in this trial right now. And then when the things are good, you're not really interested in God or Christ. You just want to live the way you want without submitting to him. Friend, if you are this, this morning, I want to tell you as lovingly as possible that you have a hard heart toward God. Because that's what scripture says. And if you continue to go down this path, you will not enter the rest of the Lord. You will not ultimately be saved. Friend, I want you to know that God is holy and righteous, but he is also gracious and merciful and loving. In fact, even this very day, he's being gracious to you as you listen to his word and as you can discern what is going on in your heart. I pray that as you continue to listen to God's word, you will soften your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and turn to him. And that brings us now to our second point, the remedy against hardening hearts in verses 12 through to 15. The remedy against hardening hearts. The author here mentions a couple of remedies. Verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What he's saying is, heed the warning about the example of the Israelites. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Lest there be in any of you. He's addressing Christians here. A sinful, unbelieving heart leading you to turn away from the living God. 
A sinful, disbelieving heart is one that does not want to see God and his ways and submit to him. It not, does not want to listen to God and his word. That's what a hardened heart is. That's what a sinful, unbelieving heart is. And the author is saying, if we don't take care, if we are not vigilant, all of us without exception can end up with having a sinful, unbelieving, hardened heart. Now you say, how can, how can we harden our hearts? Well, good question. I want to give you a couple of scenarios. Think of the commands in Scripture. There are certain things in Scripture where Scripture says we are not to do it. So I know I'm not supposed to do them because Scripture says it, but I deliberately sin and rebelled and rebel against the Lord. Or there's other parts of Scripture which says we should do these things. Like how we are to treat our parents, or how we are to treat our children, or how we are to treat our spouses, or how we are to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I say, I know I should do these things, but I'm not going to do that because fill in the blank with whatever excuse. I'm not going to do it. I know I'm supposed to do it, but I'm not going to do it because of whatever excuse. So the commands of Scripture, whether it is to do certain things or not to do certain things, I deliberately say to them, I know that's what Scripture says, but I'm not going to do that. And then I do it again. Deliberately sinning and rebelling against the Lord. The second time now, it's a lot more easier. Because I've done it once and now my heart is beginning to get hardened toward the Lord. And so now my heart is bit by bit getting hardened. You could say, essentially, when a person is just a hearer of God's word, nodding to perhaps everything that is said on a Sunday morning, or perhaps when you're reading the word, or when they listen to someone else, they're a hearer of God's word, but not a doer of God's word. That's a person who is deliberately hardening their heart. So that's... That's one way in which we can harden our hearts. Here's another way in which we can harden our hearts. You know, think God has been gracious and kind to me and he has shown his care toward me in so many ways. But instead of seeing how good God has been to me and then trusting him and relying on him, I start to grumble and complain about all the things that I don't have. Or maybe even of how life has turned out because I expected life to be a certain way. Or maybe it's when we are faced with difficulties in life, the the grumbling and the complaining starts. Instead of trusting God and His character, instead of trusting that Perhaps one of the reasons why God has brought this trial into my life is for my good, to simply show what's in my heart so I can cling on to Him and not go the path of ruin. Instead of seeing the goodness of God as I've seen all throughout my life, I choose to grumble and complain. Do you know what that is as I'm doing that? I'm choosing not to know God's ways. I'm beginning to, in another way, harden my heart. To deliberately choose not to see the grace of God which has been shown to deliberately not see God and his character and his purposes and to trust in that, but instead deliberately choose to grumble and complain because I don't, want, because I don't have what I want right now. 
And so the author of Hebrews is saying to us, take care, be vigilant. See that you don't deliberately harden your heart. See, because the danger in hardening your heart is not just that we will just stumble a little bit, but it's that as you keep hardening your heart, it will lead to a final denial of God, a final straying away from the living God who is our only hope. So what do we do as Christians when we find ourselves beginning to complain and murmur and grumble? Or when we see our heart wanting to rebel against the Lord even though we know it is sin? Oh, that we would immediately confess it to the Lord and run to the cross of Jesus and see what he has done on the cross. That he died for that sin of mine. That rebellion of mine. Jesus died for me. And then we would turn from that sin. And turn from that rebellious spirit. Against God. And ask God to keep your heart soft toward him. The author says we must be vigilant about it. Not lazy about it. We must take care about not hardening our hearts toward God's word. So that's the first remedy against hardening our hearts, to actually heed the caution and to quickly turn away from it when we see it. Now he gives us a second remedy against hardening our hearts, and he gives that to us in verse 13. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, the problem with sin is that it is deceitful. So we, it might not look like we are hardening our hearts when indeed we are. So when a person sins, at that moment, there might be justification about it, saying, oh, just this one time, you know, I just deserve to indulge in this sin because, you know, life has been so hectic or difficult for me lately. But the reality is when the person starts doing that, they're beginning to harden their heart toward God. Or when we're going through a genuinely difficult trial and we're tempted to say, is it wrong for me that I don't want this trial over? And then we can justify our complaining and our grumbling and our almost lifting up our fist against God. What we're doing there is we're beginning to harden our hearts and we don't even realize it because sin is just so deceitful. It can come in so many ways and we don't realize we're hardening our hearts. And so the author says the second remedy then is exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. There's an urgency here. Don't wait for tomorrow. No, so long as it is today, we must exhort one another. Notice here it doesn't say what is this exhorting one another? It can be encouraging one another. It can be serving one another, doing whatever it takes to point one another to the true and living God and to the cross of Jesus Christ. See, this is what it means practically then for us. It's not just coming on a Sunday morning because we think, oh, that's what the Bible says. Don't neglect the gathering of the saints. And maybe a quick chit-chat on a Sunday morning and maybe a bit of pack-up afterward and then you go home. I've done my deed for the day. That's all I can do. No, the call is to exhort one another. There's a responsibility that all of us have toward one another who are part of God's house, who are part of this church, to exhort one another. You know, sometimes we can think, oh, no one's coming to talk to me, to, to encourage me and to say that they're praying for me. But that's not what the verse says. 
The verse says, no, you go and exhort someone else. You go and encourage someone else. That's what the verse says. That you and I are called to exhort each other and to encourage one another. I mean, can you imagine if everyone in our church was waiting on the other person to come and encourage and exhort? What's going to happen? Nothing. Because everyone's just waiting for the other person to do it without when the responsibility lies within ourselves. You know, one of the burdens that I have as your pastor and even Donnie as your pastor, you know, often when we get together and pray for you as a church, we pray that we would all grow in our love for Jesus and in our love for the for one another and for the lost. And part of that is understanding what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a church and part of the church. It means that as a Christian, that we not only have a personal relationship with the Lord, no, there's a responsibility that we have toward one another of exhorting others in the congregation. You know, I think back to a time at GCBC when there was this wrong thinking that all of that encouragement, exhorting and serving one another is to be done only by the pastors and the elders. I'm so thankful that we have so grown in that and we're truly beginning to grow in our understanding and our responsibility toward one another. And I pray that God will just continue to help us understand our responsibility to one another and keep us growing in this manner. Now you might be saying, okay, I'm fairly new to this thing. How, how do I exhort and encourage others? Well, on a Sunday morning, one thing you can do is start singing loudly. See, because when we sing, we're not only worshipping the Lord, there's the individual worshipping the Lord, but we're also singing to one another. Songs and hymns and spiritual songs, as Colossians says. There's a responsibility that we have toward one another. So in singing out loudly, we, we can encourage each other and exhort one another with the truths of the songs that remind us of who God is and what He has done in and through Jesus. After the service, we can talk about the sermon, talk about the songs, talk about how your life has been. You can pray for one another. You can talk about something that you've read that has encouraged you from a Christian book. Talk about what the Lord is teaching you to one another. Perhaps open up and talk about your struggles and how the Lord has taught you about those struggles and what he's taught you about himself in that. And share that with someone. Because that will encourage that other person to even open up and trust in the Lord and see his goodness in that way. How else do you encourage others? Perhaps you know of others who, who regularly encourage others and disciple others and whatever else. And if you see that you're doing if you see that they're doing this well and they're never looking for encouragement themselves, then go and encourage them. Thank them for their faithfulness. Exhort one another as it is called today. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I need you, church. I need each of you. And you need me. And we need each other. This is God's means by which he's going to keep us from blinding ourselves to our own sins. To keep us from hardening our hearts. When we're going the way of the world, when we start valuing the things of this world, whether it's with family, with regards to parenting, with regards to our work, with regards to something else. We need to be reminded, no, 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 you're going the wrong way. Trust in Jesus and follow him and what he has said. 
This is God's means, and so there's an urgency there, so long as it is called today that we exhort one another. And then the author just very quickly, let me finish this. The author goes on to say in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that a person who truly has come to share in Christ, who's truly a believer, who's truly in union with Christ, is connected to Jesus Christ, if indeed we're holding our original confidence firm to the end, that it is a faith that perseveres to the end. See, because in the Bible, saving faith, somebody who truly trusts in Jesus, will persevere to the end. If they do not persevere to the end, it means that they never had belief in the first place. And so saving faith is persevering faith. And if we understand that and we truly believe that, then we will heed the warning of what the author is saying to take care not to harden our hearts and to also exhort one another and be in each other's lives so that we will not be deceived by the sin. And then again, he adds, as it is called today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Listen to God's word today and do not harden your heart against it. So in closing, what is the confidence that we have that we will make it to the end? Is it our strength? Is it by looking at ourselves? No, I would say just go back to the start of chapter 3. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. God who became man and came down to this world. He came to represent God to us and represent us to God. In fact, when we think of Jesus in the Gospels, we see Jesus when he too is sent into the wilderness. And you know for how many days? For 40 days. Each day representing the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. And yet where Israel was tested and failed, Jesus did not fail. Whereas Israel tested the Lord God. The Lord Jesus said, when Satan came with his temptations, he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. He refused to turn his heart away from God. In the wilderness of his temptation, Jesus walked in the steps of his people where Israel failed so that all who trust in him would ultimately persevere in the end. See, it's not just that Jesus did that. Oh, that's wonderful he did that, but he also died for you and me in our place, for our rebellion, for our sin, and then he rose again. Now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the trailblazer that has done it all. So who do we look at? We look at Jesus. We trust him. And as we trust him and trust in God's character and his goodness, then we will heed also his word to be watchful about hardening our hearts and turning to this world and also to exhort one another and encourage one another from the deceitfulness of sin so that we can continue to persevere and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray together. Father, we know your ways are higher than ours. We thank you even for the warnings of Scripture. We do confess that it is confronting, especially warnings such as this, which are direct warnings. And yet we recognize that these warnings are for our good, so that we would heed the warning and not harden our hearts, so that we would continue to consider Christ and trust in Him and rely in your goodness as you've finally revealed yourself in and through Jesus. 
Lord, help us to look to Jesus, and in looking at Jesus, help us to also encourage one another to look to Jesus rather than looking into this world or our own sinful ways. For we know that this is the means by which you will persevere us to the end. Lord, please give us soft hearts as we've listened to your word this morning and help us to be your faithful witnesses till our dying breaths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.